Well, if the uh, title of the sermon is giving you a little trouble, uh, feel free to ask one of our young people. I imagine that about 80% of them know where that uh, line uh, comes from. And I imagine also that a number of them are now disappointed because the song that was once cool has now been mentioned by the 30-something pastor at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. That's the weird thing about music, right, is that it has these connections that we don't anticipate, and you think your song is cool until you hear it in aisle five of the grocery store, and then you realize that it's now just mainstream, you're not unique, everybody likes it, right? That's what happens with music. Music is this amazing thing that connects us across generations, and it's part of who we are, and it's an it's essential character of what, what God has made us to be so that even children sing just out of joy. They don't have to be taught how to do it. And yet, it's incredibly mysterious. It's complicated. It shifts and changes as time marches on and we can get lost in what it's for and what it's doing to us and how it affects us and all sorts of questions then arise. Well, what music is appropriate for my children to sing, for me to sing in front of my children, for the church to sing together? How does music work? And what is its impact? That's our purpose this morning, to consider what music does to us, what it is, how it functions, why we use it in the context of worship. And in considering that, to being a little meta about our worship and considering these kinds of questions, these 30,000 feet uh, view kinds of questions, and considering that to worship better, to make fuller use of the songs that we sing, whether they have three verses or seven, as the case may be. Sorry about that on a hot day. But that's our purpose. That's our, our engagement this morning is to consider the music that we sing. I'm going to ask three simple questions that maybe you have asked before, kind of frequently asked questions regarding church music. First, what, uh, first, sorry, why do we sing? Why do we sing in church at all? Second, what do we sing? And third, what effect do these songs have on us? Right? Very, very moving, very methodically through these three questions. First then, why do we sing at all? And if you've ever been at the big game or been in the midst of a celebratory event, you know that often the reason we sing is it's kind of an explosion of emotion. We, we often sing because words, the plain spoken word, glorious though that is. God-given, though the plain spoken word may be, we sing because in certain moments, at certain times, the word is not enough. It doesn't have the impact that we want it to have. It doesn't get out what's in me. I need to get out the depth of my despair, and only the blues can do that. I need to get out the joy that is in my heart. I want a song of celebration. We are the champions. And that, that, as cheesy as it is, it moves us in a way that just saying the words, we are the champions, doesn't move us. 
maybe it doesn't move you anymore because it's become a cliche, music is complicated. But if I just say you can't always get what you want, that's just a statement. But if I sing it, or if the Rolling Stones sing it, it has an impact, an impact that even my children know because I will often sing that to them. Uh, it has an impact that the spoken word doesn't always carry with it. We sing because we are created by God to express things bigger than we are. And music, artistic expression in general, and music in particular, are given to us to, to, to claim, to, to address the surplus of meaning that's out there. That's what's happening in many of the verses that we've recited together this morning, the, this, this cry for a new song. The, the, the words are not capable of expressing. Words alone are not capable of expressing the bigness of salvation, the glory associated with what God has done. I, I need something bigger. I need something more monumental. I need something that expresses that artistically in a, in a way that perhaps the spoken word doesn't. We sing because words are not big enough. Now, we need to be careful there. Uh, we don't sing everything. And you shouldn't take as the point here that words, uh, that, that song is better than the spoken word. No, they're each fit for a particular kind of occasion. I don't know if you're aware of the group Improv Everywhere. Uh, Improv Everywhere, it's, think of it as kind of like, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, practical jokes, but they're not mean, right? They're kind of a group that does sort of kind, practical jokes on, on big groups. And they recently did one where they went into a mall, a food court in a mall, and they pretended to be in a musical. You know, so they sang out, I need a napkin, right? And uh, you know, uh, going through the mall, going through the food court and pretending like life itself was a musical. And the reason why that's uh, comic, the reason why it's a little weird, is because we don't use music for those purposes. Music isn't really fit for that. The musical is a strange genre, right? Uh, and we enjoy it, but we recognize that there's an artificiality to it. So not everything is sung, and it's weird, it would be weird uh, if we did sing everything. It would actually cloud the meaning of a thing. This is why uh, legal documents are not written in poetry, because it would obscure its purpose. Its purpose is to be specific and concrete and tangibly uh, appliable. It's not intended to be a mystery. I often tell students, you know, do your, your paper, your academic paper, is, it's not a mystery. I shouldn't have to wait till the end to figure out. It's not poetry, right? Be clear, be succinct, etc. cetera. Uh, a sermon is not sung because there's an intent to be clear in what's spoken and to be effective and to communicate effectively about the word of God. So not everything is sung, but what song offers us, what music offers us, is a form of expression that is in some ways beyond us. It escalates and elevates the spoken word. It elevates everything that we do so that what we do now in music, we do with a skip in our step. That's what music does. That's why it is appropriate 
for worship. We have a song to sing because God has done marvelous things. God has done marvelous things. How do you get at the bigness of what God has done, the goodness of what God has done? Words are not enough. We sign and seal it to each other. As we talked about last week, we sing these words to each other as we're talking about now. Paul instructs us to, in, to sing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And that instruction goes to the heart of who we are. It's why we sing. Because it es elevates, escalates, enhances everything else that we do. This is good news. If you're the type of person that is sitting here and you don't know how to express yourself, right? A lot of us, you know, you're sitting in worship and you hear about the marvelous things that God has done and you're clueless as how to express that. So music comes to you in the midst of the service to give you a form of expression that allows you, you know, to praise God in a way that perhaps you are unable to kind of on your own. We together are gathered to express something bigger than ourselves and music aids us and assists us in that. So if you're the type that mumbles the hymns or doesn't sing them at all, let me encourage you, think about song differently. You're probably thinking about song as you know, something that uh, some people are good at and others are not. Song is designed by God himself, sung by God himself. We heard God singing to us in the promise of forgiveness. He exalts over us in song. It is given to us and we gather together to sing to one another so that we might all find an increase in the expression of praise that we might offer to God. Those hymns are there for you. You might not have a good voice. Those hymns are there for you. They are there to help us move through our uh, difficulty expressing love, joy, thankfulness, complaint, difficulty. They're there to guide us so that we, though we have difficulty expressing ourselves, are engaged together in expressing something bigger than us, the glory of God. What then do we see? Exploring why we sing, what do we sing? Now, you can appreciate that there might be a number of different answers to that question. It depends a little bit upon what you mean by what do you sing? What do we mean by the question itself? There are a couple of things that you could mean by that. What do we sing? Well, you could mean what do we sing about? You could sing about different things. Uh, we have love songs that are about usually a girl or a boy, maybe even just the concept of love itself. The blues, which are usually about dogs that have died at a tragic time, uh, or a car that has been lost in an inappropriate circumstance, right? We have songs that are about different things. Well, what are church songs supposed to be about? We have it here in our text. We have it in Revelation. We sing because the Lamb has been counted worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. 
We sing about the Lamb who was slain and by His blood ransomed people for God. We sing because now every tribe and language and nation has been united under the Lamb. What do we sing about? We sing about the kingdom of God and His Christ. And we, as the church, have been given this unique thing to sing about. If we don't sing about it, who will? So we don't waste our time singing uh, songs that the world sings. Though they may be good songs, they are not appropriate for here, for this moment. This moment is about proclaiming the kingdom of God and His Christ. We sing about Christ. We proclaim Christ and Him crucified, risen, seated at the heavenly throne room of God. We proclaim it verbally. We sign it to each other, and we proclaim it in song. And we, the church, have been given this task to sing the praises of Christ. Now, as we're going to look at, there's also a variety of songs that we sing. They're not all, you know, not all of our songs are, Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. Our songs have a variety to them because the kingdom of God is itself variable and complex and cosmic in scope. So in one sense, because we sing about the kingdom of God, we can sing about anything. We can sing about how every tribe and tongue and language and people, every circumstance that man experiences is appropriate to bring before the Lord and to sing before the Lord as a Christian. But we sing it in a unique way because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to us. And so everything we sing is touched by the kingship of God, by our citizenship within that kingdom, and particularly Christ as king of that kingdom is touched by Christ himself, crucified for our sins, risen for our justification. We sing about Christ. Now, to take advantage of that, what our songs are about, you have to be engaged in worship. You have to be thinking about the words that you're singing. Actually, you don't. A lot of times, songs have passive power. You learn things in song without even knowing that you're learning them. It's one of the scary things about music is that it imprints into us without us even knowing it. There are a number of families in the room, and I know for a fact that a number of these families are big fans of Daniel Tiger, because Daniel Tiger has taught our children that if you try new foods, it might taste good. And when you've got to go potty, stop and go right away. Flush and wash and be on your way. It gets into our kids, the music it has an effect, it has an impact, even without them knowing it. Music does that, it imprints upon us. It becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of our soul. It, it, it sticks to us. I passed my English Bible exam because of the hymnody of the church. That's how I knew where verses were. That's how I knew where uh, that phrase comes from. That's how I knew how to fill in the blank. The English Bible exam in seminary is this trivia exam about where things are in the Bible and how this word, verse finishes itself and 
Where might you find the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible? Things like that. Our songs imprint upon us the Word of God passively. And that is a glorious thing. Because when you're in a time of trouble, you start to think, though the world with devils fill, and you realize, I knew that all along. I knew that a mighty fortress is my God. And now it's relevant and I have a song to sing. Okay, so it does imprint passively, but it is even more, precisely because song is so powerful, let me underline the point. It is even more effective when we are engaged in what we sing. Thinking about the words. It's hard to do that on the fly, I know, especially if you haven't seen the hymn before. Our bulletins are printed uh, online. They're posted online every week. Grab them with your family and pick a hymn that we will sing the coming Sunday and, and use it. Think about the words. Or if that's not you, you're not the proactive uh, kind of uh, person, take your bulletin with you and use the words that are printed and the hymns that are listed in your worship throughout the week. Consider the songs that you sung on Sunday and bring them with you as you walk in the course of the week. What are the, what are the songs about? They're about Christ. But you can mean other things when you ask, what do we sing? You could mean, uh, what types of songs do we sing? The genre of songs. You could mean, what are they about? They're about Christ. But what kinds of songs do we sing? We don't sing uh, barroom songs, right? We, we don't sing uh, different, we sing certain types of things and not other types of things. What kinds of songs are appropriate for us to sing in church? Your hymnals are full of wonderful types of songs. Your Bible is full of different kinds of music. I listed out a couple of here. I'll, I'll, I'll list them out for you. Uh, uh, just as a rough list, we have psalm, songs of thanksgiving. We have songs of praise. We have songs that are designed uh, so, as songs of confession. We sang our confession of sin this morning. That's a confessionary Psalm, you can speak your confession, but sometimes you are in the depths of woe, and it is more appropriate to lament about your sin before the Lord in song. Oaths and covenants are sung before the Lord. Zephaniah is one such song. Psalm 1 is a psalm of teaching that's designed to teach about the nature of the law. Psalm 119 is a consideration of the law designed to teach the components of the law to future generations. We have songs by which we come before the throne room of God and bring to Him our requests, our lamentations. We have an incredible variety of song that is given to us. In worship, this is a $5 tip, all right? In worship, consider the kind of thing that you're singing. Is it a hymn of supplication? That is to say, from the depths of woe I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. What you're doing there is you're saying, there is something wrong, Lord. Fix it. Help. Be my fortress. Be my strength. Is it a hymn of confession? Bearing your soul before the Lord. 
engage your mind and your heart and your will in the kind of song that you're singing so, so that it leads you to accomplish that which is designed to accomplish. We should sing God be merciful to me as a confession and think about it as such. This is me coming before the Lord God with my sin publicly in song and allow that song to enhance the spirit and mood of that confession. The third thing that you could mean, what do we sing, is not so much what kind of song, but what kind of music, what genre of music should we be singing in church. Actually, this is probably the most frequently asked question, and it comes in the form of something like this. Why don't we sing more music that I'm used to, that I like? We talk about music as if it's ours, right? You, ask, you, you can ask anybody in this room, what's your music? And they know what you mean. They mean the music you grew up with. They mean the music that makes you, that you listen to when you go jogging. They mean the music that makes you tick. And it's yours. It's my music. I have identified, part of my identity is tied in to this genre, to this style. And it can get very complicated very quick. We live in the modern world, and so uh, we have the internet, and so anybody that has a particular music style could get on there and publish a whole album of stuff that just fits you perfectly. I learned recently on a, on a youth trip the difference between dubstep and IDM. The distinct difference, and it, it was a very descriptive and helpful uh, distinction, but we get uh, very particular about the kind of music that we like. Why do we sing the kind of music that we sing in church? Again, we have to be very brief here, and I know it's a warm, uh, warm day, but I want to give you just some principles that we work with when we're selecting music, the kind of music that we do. We, I think, intuitively recognize that different kinds of music do different kinds of things to us. And we want to avoid elitism in that. Okay? This is not an argument that church music is better, or that our music is better, or that this is the only way to worship is with an organ and a piano. That, that, this is not an argument uh, thankful for that. Thankfully, the worship wars are a little bit behind us, and we have a little bit of distance. But we can also think about why we do what we do. Resisting elitism, why do we do what we do? Why do we sing what we sing? One principle, we try to make sure our uh, music is timeless. I know that's a relative term, right? We sing music very differently than they sang it in uh, ancient Israel. So it's not absolutely timeless. But we recognize that different kinds of music are more or less tied to a particularly narrow set of time. So my wife and I have been watching uh, a mini-series on TV. It's one of these sort of epic historical dramas, Braveheart kind of style uh, drama of, of conquest and kingdoms and the English rolling hills. And at least once per episode, this kind of synthesized piano 80s style music will come on, and it totally doesn't fit. It's totally, in a, it sounds like we're in Top Gun. It totally doesn't work. 
And what happens is, is you disengage a little bit. It ruins your immersion. One of the things that we strive for is to, to, to bring the music in such a way that it is, that is timeless, that it transcends generational gaps. It's not that it's your favorite kind of music, but it, that, it, that all of us can gather together and sing it. Fittedness, second principle. Music should fit what it's designed for. This is also the problem of the 80s style music in, uh, in the miniseries. But music is designed to put us in a certain kind of mood, to affect our minds and our wills and our hearts in a certain kind of way, and it brings out a certain aspect of our lives. I'll confess, when I'm grading student papers, I like to listen to Radiohead. I feel like it puts me in the right frame of nihilistic uh, helplessness and hopelessness about the state of our world as I'm considering what students have learned over the course of the year. You know, it puts me in the right mood. It fits the occasion. Our music needs to fit what we're doing. We are worshiping God. That's what we're engaged in. That's the work of Sabbath, to bring our praises and our supplications before God. And so our music, it can be many things. It can be a lamentation. It can be a confession. It can be sad. It can be happy. It can be joyous. It can be informational. It can be edutainment. It can be a lot of different things, but it must be reverent because it has to fit the occasion in which it is sung. Timelessness, fittedness, simplicity. We all need to be able to sing it. It can't be so complex or so difficult to sing that we're all lost. If you've ever been to a, a worship service, sometimes uh, at, at other churches, sometimes they'll, they'll use PowerPoint, right? PowerPoint, and they'll put the words up on PowerPoint. That's not wrong. It's not a sin. It's not that that church is doing it wrong. I don't want to say that. But there is a beauty in us opening our hymnals. And even if you've never heard the sermon, uh, the song before, being able to follow along if you can read music. Um, these timeless tunes are, because they're timeless, because they are uh, uh, reverent, they are accessible to all of us. Their simplicity allows us to together worship. This is one of the reasons why I love jazz. Uh, I like some hip hop. But this is one of the reasons why we don't use those styles as much in worship, because it is complicated for us as a body to all be on the same page and to know when to come in. Last week, if you'll remember, we sang, the law of the Lord is perfect, and it was to a modern tune, and we all had trouble coming in at the right time. It wasn't simple. It was perfectly appropriate for where we were in the service, but it wasn't simple. And so our worship was a little bit out of sync. We worshiped, and we worshiped well, and God was pleased with it. But one of the things we aim for is simplicity and accessibility so that we together, as the body, can engage in this act, united. And that's our last principle. We choose our worship, we choose our music so that it fits us as a body, that it's corporate. All of these principles are actually designed to promote us together singing before the Lord, gathering in song, being on the same page, knowing what's next, knowing when to come in so that our worship is enhanced by our unity. 
hip hop, you may love hip hop, and, it's, uh, and it's, this is not a problem with hip hop in, in and of itself, but hip hop and jazz are very individualistic genres. They're designed around individual expression. And that may be appropriate in certain contexts of worship. It may be appropriate to sing an aria rather than a chorus. But as a whole, we are doing this together. And so our worship music has a reverence and a simplicity and accessibility that is appropriate for us as a body. I've been at churches that do a traditional style and it, nevertheless, it breaks with that corporate emphasis. It's so complicated. The organ is so loud. It's so overwrought that it's impossible for me to be engaged. And I've been at worship services that are more contemporary that have done it really well. A reverent musical style for the people of God that we can participate in. But I've also been at contemporary worship services that cranked it up to 11 and you couldn't hear a thing that was going on. And it became a performance, not us gathered together for worship. This isn't about what's your favorite kind of music. It is how do we as a body together revere our Lord and our Savior Christ in a manner appropriate for us and who we are in this present context and pleasing to God, thinking about all of those issues with the medium and the message and the fittedness between the two. Final question then, what effect does music have on us? What does it do to us? I'd like to suggest two things here, okay? First, one that we've actually already addressed. Music helps you get what's in you out. It's a form of expression. Music is a tool that God has given us, that God himself uses to get what's in us out, to express the depth of our woe the height of our joy, the extent of our thankfulness. It allows us to get what's in us out in a way different from, distinct from, but not necessarily better than the spoken word. It's a form of expression, a heightened form of expression. The second thing, though, and this is what I want to close with and consider as we... Uh, as we uh, prepare for our final hymn. The second thing that it does is it takes something that's outside of us and grains it in, imprints it inside. It takes something that, that's outside and makes it who we are. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5 says, sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's so that the body of Christ isn't, they're, they're praising God, but they're not just praising God. They're forming themselves. They're transforming themselves. Music changes us. How? What does it do? How does it change us? What music does, particularly reverent music that proclaims Jesus Christ, what music does is it is one of the ways that God himself conforms us to the image of his Son. It's one of the ways that God implants the word upon our hearts and invests us with the truth of Christ. It's one of the ways in which we are conformed to the image of Christ for all time. Music transforms us. This is, this is a scary thought. It might change what you listen to during the week, although this is not a sermon about what music is or is not appropriate. But do realize 
that music goes inside. It, it takes who we are and molds us in a certain way. So that what uh, was once a mystery becomes intuitive, becomes part of me, becomes part of my culture. It is my music. Not only because it expresses something about me, but because it has an impact on me and affects me and conforms me. It speaks to me and it speaks into me. That's what music does. The power of song, the songs that we sing together as we reflect on them, as we consider them, as we bring the Word of God to them, as we engage in the act of worship, their power is used by God to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. They are not ornaments. They are not merely ornamental. They're not merely there to be pretty, though hopefully they are that. Rather, they are there as component parts of our worship, elements of worship, because God uses music. He gives us music to express who we are and who He is, and He uses it to conform us into His image that we might together gather with angels and praise our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you've been given music. That's why we all together need to be more engaged in the process of making music together. Because God uses these things to prepare our hearts to receive His Word, to conform our hearts to the image of His Son, to transform us from the inside out. Music doesn't just come out of you, it goes into you. And the beauty of that is is that as it goes into us, insofar as it proclaims Christ in its content, so Christ comes into our hearts and transforms us into His image. Let's pray.